This evening we're turning to the 102nd Psalm, so Psalm 102, and we'll read some verses from this chapter, commencing at verse 12 and read through to verse 22. So Psalm 102, and commencing reading verse 12, as you turn there, can I also add my words of welcome to of all who have joined with us tonight, and we trust the Lord will bless us even as we gather around His truth and His holy word. So we're going to read the scripture and then we'll have a word of prayer. So let's look to the Lord uh, and we will consider his word. Let's hear the word of the living God. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute, and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion, and his praise in Jerusalem. When the people are gathered together, and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless his word to all our hearts. So let's just unite together in prayer once again and look to the Lord for his blessing. Let's unite and ask the Lord to help. Father in heaven, we wait before thee now. We thank thee for uh, these hymns of praise that we've been able to render and join our voices together and to praise thy holy and thy glorious name. We thank Thee, Lord, that Thou hast given unto us Thy truth and Thy Word. And Lord, we have come now to gather round Thy Word. It is before us. Open upon laps, upon this pulpit, O God, and we thank Thee, Lord, that from Thy truth we get instruction. It is in Thy truth that we have a revelation, not only of Thou who art our God, but also of ourselves. We pray that the Holy Ghost will come, that He will illuminate the page and give understanding to all who have assembled. We pray especially for those who are not saved. We pray that this Word will be a Word in season, that Thou would penetrate through the outward facade, the hard heart, O God, that has been hardened even by many years of gospel rejection. We pray, O God, Thou hast said, Is not my word like a hammer? And we pray, Lord, for a breaking tonight. We ask for a softening. This is something alone that our God can do. No preacher, no matter how gifted, no matter how earnest he might plead, he cannot do the work that the Holy Ghost alone can do. And we pray that he will come, and that his sweet and powerful influence will brood over the gathering, and will work from seat to seat and heart to heart. Lord, I look to thee, and I pray, that thou would forgive me of my sin, ever conscious, more and more of my weakness and my own unworthiness. And yet, Lord, I thank thee for Christ, and I rejoice that I am found in him, 
not having my own righteousness, but I rejoice for the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, cleanse me in the blood, and by faith I ask for the infilling of the Spirit, and I receive the blessed promised Holy Ghost, and I pray that Thou would fill me, and that Thou would use me. Let my name perish and fall to the ground, and let the man at Thy right hand receive all the honor and all the glory that is due alone to Him. These things we ask in our Savior's name, and for His and Thine everlasting praise and glory. Amen. A number of Sundays back, our morning reading was from Psalm 102. It's a psalm that has many wonderful verses. For example, verses 13 to 16, which speak of a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord when He visits His church at the appointed time with power and revival blessing. We could also note some of the verses at the end of the chapter which speak of the immutable nature of our God in comparison to creation that surrounds us. But it was the words of verses 19 to 22 that grabbed my attention that morning, which I want to bring before you this evening. We'll read them together again. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Now, we do not know who wrote this psalm, but we know the kind of situation in which the words of the psalm are to be employed from the inscription, a prayer of the inflicted, when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Now, men usually write out of experience, and so it is probable that the psalmist himself was in or had been in some time of distress. Now, this is an unusual inscription as far as the psalms go. Usually, the psalms, they, they give us an indication of who the author is or something of the historical occasion on which it was written, but not this one. Rather, Rather, it is a summary of the content of the psalm. Now, we could divide the psalm into three sections and label each section complaint, comfort, and confidence. Verses 1 to 11, we have the lamentation of the psalmist and a description of his sorrows, and there we find his complaint. Then the mood changes at the start of verse 12. We read the words, But thou, O Lord, there is his comfort, for he begins to see the indications of deliverance, the evidence that God is about to show favor to his people. That second section, it runs from verse 12 through to verse 22. Then in the third section, which runs from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, we have the psalmist's confidence, and that, of course, is based on the unchangeableness of our God. In the verses 19 to 22, they're found in the second section. And there is great comfort in these verses for those who are in the distress of their sin. Verse 18, it tells us that these things are written for the generation to come, for those who would rise up to praise the Lord. These things are written for our learning. And what God has done in the past, 
he is able to do again. And here we have presented before us these verses 19 to 22. The God who sees and saves, who hears and helps. And that's the title of my message this evening. The God who sees and saves, who hears and helps. Now we're going to consider these four verses under three headings tonight. Firstly, notice with me the perception of the sovereign. The perception of the sovereign, verse 19, let's read it together. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven did the Lord behold the earth. Now the word earth here, it obviously refers to the physical world over which the Lord has his watchful eye and has his providential care. But we could also say that primarily the word earth here refers to the people on the earth, the inhabitants that fill the earth. Many times in Scripture we have this revelation concerning the Lord. We have a very similar statement, sentiment in Psalm 33 and the verses 13 and 14. Turn back there, Psalm 33 verses 13 and 14, and we read that the Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men from the place of his habitation. He looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, scientifically speaking, the human eye, the human eye can see light from the Andromeda galaxy, which is 23 quintillion miles away. But on a global scale, the human eye can see for about three miles before the horizon becomes a limit because of the curvature of the earth. Even if we were standing upon Mount Everest, which is the highest peak on this planet, the human eye can see for 209 miles. And that equates really to a whole area of 137,000 square miles. You know, that's not bad. And yet our knowledge of all that is going on in that area would be very limited. The Lord, however, He looks upon the whole earth. He has a vantage point of viewing it from His sanctuary from heaven. He sits upon the circle of the earth, and therefore the horizon, it presents no problem of limitation to Him. And this is a marvel indeed, that the Lord of glory, the one who is high and holy, the lofty one, would be interested in this blue speck of a planet that floats in the Milky Way galaxy in the midst of this vast universe. And yet we are told that that is exactly what he does. He beholds, he looks from his sanctuary upon this earth and the inhabitants of this world. He is so exalted, we're told in Psalm 113, and the verse 6, that he humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven. Yes, the very heavens are God must humble himself and also to behold those things that are in the earth. He is a great interest in this world because he has made it to be inhabited. It is the theater upon which his plan of redemption is is wrought out, and it is a stage on which his elect, they are born, they are born again, they live and they die. And so God has a great interest in the inhabitants of this earth. God sees every single one upon planet earth. There is nothing that can be hid from our God. 
the darkness and the light, they are both alike to him. We're told in Proverbs 15 and verse 3 that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Now the eyes of the Lord, that's an anthropomorphic expression where it really attributes human-like features or aspects to our God. See, God who is spirit, as Christ informs us in John chapter 4, and he's speaking there to the lady at the well of Samaria, and he tells us there that God is spirit. We're told in our confession that God has, and he is without, sorry, he is without body parts. But the Lord accommodates to our limitations, and he uses such language in Scripture that we might get an understanding of who he is. That is grace, that God would make himself Knowing that he would take things that you and I, we know that we can relate to in order uh, to describe himself unto us, to make himself known to you and me. That is grace, that he wants to make himself known unto sinners. And by this expression, the eyes of the Lord, he reveals to mankind that he is omniscient, that he is all-knowing, that he beholds, that he sees everything, Nothing can be hidden from his gaze. Nothing, no one can escape the observation, the watchful eye of an omniscient God. God is always assessing. He's always appraising. He's always overseeing. He's always superintending, safeguarding his creation. God sees all people. He knows all people, both evil and righteous. Since the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, so too is His presence. You see, the idiom, the eyes of the Lord, it also expresses God's omnipresence. Not only His omniscience, that He knows all things, but that He is everywhere. Take, for example, Second Chronicles in the chapter 16. In the verse 9, we read there that the eyes of the Lord run to and through throughout the whole earth. Listen, that He might show Himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. He is there helping, strengthening, enabling those that are his children. And it's there referenced to by the eyes of the Lord running to and through across the whole earth. This is something you need to take on board, sinner. The Lord sees, he knows all about you. He has seen what you have got up to this week. The Lord knows what you have done, he knows what you have said, he knows what you have listened to, he knows what, he has, what you have watched, he has been there, he has recorded it in his books as evidence on judgment day when he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. His penetrating eye, it pierces past even the outward facade of man into the very depths of their being. He is one who beholds a heart, Hebrews 4 Verse 13, it makes the point that all things, all things, your heart, your thoughts, your deeds, your actions, whatever they might be, they're open, they're naked before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That's a sobering thought, sinner. Because God has been looking down from heaven and from the heights of His sanctuary, and He has been observing you in the week that has passed. You have concealed and hidden much from your fellow man, from your work colleagues, from your neighbors, from your friends, 
from your family, from your parents, young person. But God has been there all the while watching you from the heights of a sanctuary and from heaven. He's been taking note of it all. Closed doors and deleted internet history searches, they cannot obscure the vision of God. And yet, and yet His mercy is seen towards you, sinner, and that He spares you still. He has been patient with you, though you have committed all these things, maybe not in the sight of man, but in His sight, and yet He spares you still. And yet I must warn you that God's long-suffering, God's forbearance, and His patience, it is only extended to you in order that you might be saved, not so that you could continue in sin in His sight. In verse 19, we have mentioned here of where God looks from and where He looks upon. He beholds the earth, a world that has fallen were the curse it causes the whole creation to groan and travail in pain. He sees a world that's filled with corruption and wickedness and rebellion and sin. And that's what he saw exactly in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and the verse 5. And God saw, he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and in every imagination the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's what God still sees today. Not the thoughts and the imaginations of man's heart is only evil continually. That's what he said to Noah, that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Therefore, that's what God still surveys. And yet he's still patient. He has covenant never to flood the world, but that does not mean he will not judge your sin that you have committed in his sight. As Christians, we look out upon this world filled with sin and iniquity, and it grieves our heart. But you think how the Lord must feel. We read that in Noah's day it repented him that he had made man upon the earth. What he views now, the iniquity, the transgression, the perverseness, men acting as beasts before him, unwise, foolish, it's not what he intended for man. But he made man the crowning piece of his creation to have communion and fellowship with him, to be the bearer of his image. And yet sin has spoiled it all. He looks upon the earth, but he looks from heaven. That's the place that he reigns as sovereign. He said in Isaiah 66 and verse 1 that the the heaven is my throne. And there we have the picture of the sovereign, and the earth is my footstool. The sovereign, he looks with superintending care, providential governance upon the whole of creation. From the little sparrow that falls upon the ground to the large mountain that trembles in the earthquake, God sees it all. But we're also told that he looks from the height of his sanctuary. And you know, that's very interesting. For in the earthly sanctuary of the tabernacle and the temple, that's where the mercy seat was found. You know, sometimes the Lord looking down and the Lord beholding the earth, it implies looking down in judgment or impending judgment. As was the case with the 
antediluvian world or the cities of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we read in Genesis 18 and verse 20, God looked down with impending judgment, but in the context here, because the sanctuary is referred to, that's where the mercy seat was, where the blood had been taken in, we find that God is looking down in mercy and pity from the heights of His sanctuary. And here we have a personal, we have a revelation of God's personal, ever-caring, gracious, loving nature for sinners, for His people. The Lord is plenteous in mercy, and His eye is always upon His covenant, His elect people. We're told that Psalm 34 in the verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ear is open unto their cry. God is looking down in mercy. He's looking down in pity upon sinners, upon His own dear people. You read here this word, look down. It implies an earnest and a thorough inquisition. It's really got the imagery of someone coming to a window and looking out. And here we have, as it were, a picture of God. And we read in Malachi of the windows of heaven. And God is a deep interest in sinners. He beholds them. He sees all their sin. And yet He's looking in pity. He's looking in mercy. He's looking in grace and love. Even upon you tonight, sinner. Yes, it's not a marvel. But that's what He's doing. You see, God is not some remote, some distant God that's no ability, that has no concern. But God looks down and He sees and He saves, He hears and He helps. And that brings me to my second point this evening. Because we thought about the perception of the sovereign, but notice secondly from verse 20, we have the plight of the sinner. Read verse 20 together with me. It says, To hear the groaning of the prisoner to loose those that are appointed to death. And we have two things mentioned in this verse concerning the sinner, their sign and their sentencing. And here we notice sinners in misery, the misery of their sin. And that's exactly what God's mercy is suited to, sinners in misery, in misery. Now it is thought that this psalm was written when the Jews were in captivity or after they returned from captivity in Babylon as a memorial to what the Lord had done for them. But for our purpose tonight, it doesn't matter really when it was written. The question has to be asked, why? Why were they in captivity in the first place? Well, it was for their sin that they were taken from the land of plenty, from the land that flowed with milk and honey, into miserable bondage in a strange land. Now, though this portion is based on a historical event, it has a spiritual significance, for it is sin. It is sin that has brought man into miserable spiritual bondage. See, God endowed man with every advantage, and He gave him everything needed for a blessed and a happy existence at the beginning. Yet Adam sinned against God, and he was driven from the garden. It was his transgression that plunged mankind into a state, as our catechism teaches, of sin and misery. Every misery in this life is a consequence of sin. The miserable, 
the miserable condition of the sinner as a result of the effects of sin both inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, sin is miserable. It often is its own punishment. We could think inwardly, the punishment of sin. You have the bitterness of envy, the unfulfilled lusts of the mind and the flesh, the blindness of ignorance, the lack of peace, the absence of joy. The emptiness of soul, the loneliness of spirit, the foreboding of impending judgment, the fear of death, all cause the sinner to cry, to sigh in their misery. See, the crux of the sinner's misery is is that by the fall they lost communion with God. And by breaking fellowship with the one who is the source of all goodness, sinners, they lost every right to the good that accompanies fellowship with God. Sinners are in their misery. Inwardly but outwardly, sin creates misery all around us. In the environment, in our relationships, in, in those things that we see happening in this world. God, He cursed the ground and, and all other creatures because of man's sin. The earth, I've already mentioned, it groans under our feet because God has subjected it to to vanity. Because of us it longs, it longs for the day when God will liberate it from sin's curse at Christ's return. Many evils come upon our body because of sin. Outwardly we have illnesses and we have diseases, old age, all our infirmities, all these things come to us. We experience natural disasters. Relationships become strained. We have wars. We have rumors of wars. We have contention. And so sin, it affects the miserable condition of man inwardly and outwardly. Now it has to be said that while the misery of the fall affects and touches every area of life, things are not as miserable as they could be. And this is because in wrath God remembers mercy. See, sinner, you might be saying to yourself tonight, well, the man there's talking about a sinner being miserable. But to be honest, I'm not miserable. I'm, I'm enjoying life. I have good health. I have plenty of friends. I have good food. I, I want for nothing and so on. I'm, you know, I'm living in the prime of life. He's talking about being miserable. I know nothing of such things, but the reality is those things through the patience and forbearance of God while they might mitigate the effects of the curse, they do not change the spiritual condition that you are in tonight. They do not release the sinner from their miserable bondage of their sin. Misery engulfs them inwardly and outwardly, and therefore, what do they do? They reach for the opium of this world, the pleasures that this world, to give them release, and yet they are bound. They are bound in their sin. They are miserable. Yet they reach for all these things. They fill their minds with music. You see it now. People can barely, barely tolerate silence. They want to quieten the conscience. Therefore, they're always walking around with something in their ears. They're always trying to distract themselves 
from the miserable condition of their soul and the accusing nature of their conscience, and they're miserable in their sin. And if they continue in that condition, then misery, misery will follow them into eternity, and they will go to hell. And they will know misery without the mitigation of God's common grace. That is the punishment of loss. What theologians call damnation. Where the sinner will lose those things that were the expression of the kindness of God to them. You think of the rich man. Luke chapter 16. Yes, he had He had the common grace of God of water upon this earth to relieve him in his misery. And yet in hell, there was not a drop of water to cool his tongue. That's the punishment of loss. That's damnation. And sinner, every common grace you enjoy now, every mercy that God loads upon you day and daily will be withdrawn. That's damnation. And there will be nothing to mitigate your eternal misery. Do you understand that? The punishment of loss. But also in hell the misery is compounded by the the punishment, the punishment of sensibility. What does that mean? Where they will will they will experience the grievous torments of soul and body without intermission. Yes, there's the punishment of loss. When God withholds His common grace, but there's a punishment of sensibility where the wrath of God will be poured out upon your soul. That dear friend is unending misery. No sinners will wail and sigh and hail. There will be no salvation. There will be no help from them. That's the sentence that's passed upon every sinner. They're appointed to death, appointed to wrath because of their sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, it tells us that every sinner by nature is a child of wrath. That is, they are deserving of death and are under the sentence of it. Do you understand your, your spiritual condition, sinner? Has the Spirit of God been striving with you, convicting you, so that you might see the state of misery and bondage that you are in? Is there a sigh? Is there a groan within your soul to be delivered from that state? Do you long to be at liberty? Do you desire to no longer be a slave to sin, to be released from the snare of the devil? Does your heart cry out for emancipation from the sentence of eternal death? Well, the Bible tells us here and in other places that the Lord hears the cries of those who are in the prison house of their sin. He hears those cries. He, he hears those sighs. He heard the cries of those that were in bondage in the past. In Exodus chapter 3, in the verse number 7, God says to Moses, of his people, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in bondage and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Is there a cry from your soul that you want to be free from your sin, that you want to have new life in Christ? God in pity hears the sighs of the sinner, but he also in power, he, he helps them. 
Psalm 79 and the verse 11. The psalmist says, Let the sign of the prisoner come before thee, according to the greatness of thy power. Preserve those that are appointed to die. What a prayer, child of God, we can offer unto our God to pray for those who sit amongst us, for those who live around us, that the Lord will preserve those that are appointed unto death, that He would hear their sighs, that He would see their misery, that He would come and help them and save them. God heard the sign of Israel in their bondage. And he goes on to say to Moses, not only did he hear it, but he says to Moses, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. We read here in verse 20, Psalm 102, that he looses those who are appointed to death. Oh, he not only hears, he does something about it. He sets them free. Turn to Psalm 107. In the verse 13 and 14, and we read there, Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands and sunder. You know, this is something that He did for Manasseh. Second Chronicles 33. We read there that Manasseh was bound with fetters. And he was in affliction, and though a great sinner that he was, when he cried unto the Lord by reason of his affliction and misery, the Lord was entreated of him, heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. The Lord set him free. The Lord looks from heaven upon sinners with pity. He sees and he hears. He saves and he helps. Now, how does he do that? How does he save? How does he help? How does he loose sinners from the bondage of their sin and release them from the sentence of eternal death? How does he take away the misery which their sin causes and fill them with joy and gladness? Well, it's by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who releases from the shackles of sin, from the bondage of the law, from the tyranny of Satan, and from the fear of death, and he brings them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It is Christ. This work that Christ would do was prophesied by Isaiah. He would be the one who would preach good tidings unto the meek. He was the one who was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That's why we read Luke chapter 4, because Christ fulfilled that. Christ came to do the work that would set sinners free, that would loose them from the appointment of eternal death. Herein is the gospel, poor, miserable, bound sinner. The Son of God came into the world. He took to Himself that True human nature. He who is the lawgiver. He was born under his own law. Under the requirement to keep it. And under the punishment and the penalty of its transgression. He underwent all the miseries of this life. Study the Gospels. And from the manger to the cross, his life was one of suffering and hardship. And yet through it all he never sinned once, though sorely tried and tempted. He never sinned in thought, word, and deed. By his obedience to God's law, he procured for sinners a justifying righteousness. 
He went to the cursed death of the cross. He endured the wrath of God to take the punishment for sin. He shed His precious blood. That is the great ransom price that releases sinners from the sentence of eternal death. He is the one who satisfied divine justice. It is by Him, it is through Him, it is in Him, sinner, that you can be set free, free from the corruption and the condemnation of your sin. Psalm 146, verse 7, it says, The Lord looseth the sinners. Look to Christ, sinner. Call upon Him in your plight. He not only sees and hears, but listen, He will save, He will help. He's looking from heaven in pity and in mercy upon your miserable condition. So we have thought about the perception of the sovereign and the plight of the sinner. Finally tonight, I want to think about the portion of the saved. The portion of the saved, when the Lord delivers His people from their misery and condemnation, He gives them a portion not only in this life, but an inheritance in the world to come. He turns their sign into singing, and that's exactly what we read in verse 21 of Psalm 102. It tells us there to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem. That's those that are who are loosed from death. See, when the Lord turned again the captivity of the Israelites and brought them out of Babylon. They fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah recorded there in Isaiah 51 verse 11. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. It is God that puts joy and gladness into the heart portion of God's people. What is the lot of those who have been delivered, who have been emancipated? Well, it is to publish, it is to declare, it is to proclaim the name of the Lord. God saves His people in order that they might share with others what He alone can do. He gives them purpose and meaning. They have a purpose in life, they have a meaning in life to glorify God and to enjoy Him Forever, he also puts a new song into their mouth. Praise unto their God. The redeemed sinner, they had no song of joy. While in the misery of their sin. Oh, they might have sang the songs of this world. There's no true joy in that. But being set free and loosed from the sentence of death, they now... They now show forth the praises of Him who have called them out of darkness into His marvelous life. They have a song in the soul, melody instead of misery, and that's the result of the knowledge of sins forgiven. Do you know your sins are forgiven? There's nothing that will give you joy or gladness than to know that your sins are forgiven, that you're the redeemed of the Lord, that He's brought you out of the bondage of your sin. And everlasting joy shall be upon your head. This is the portion of the saved. Now, when the saved do this, when they proclaim and praise, what happens? God uses us to gather 
and to draw others to worship him. And that's what we read there in verse 22. When the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. God through his people who proclaim, who praise, will gather a people from the kingdoms of this world to serve him day and night in his heavenly temple. Zechariah 8, verse 20, it tells us, There shall come people, the inhabitants of many cities, many people and strong nations, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. God brings sinners out of this world. He unites them to Himself and also brings them into union with the people of God. They become members. They become citizens of Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. That's their eternal inheritance. They will enter into heaven where the voice of weeping is no more heard nor the voice of crying for there God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And let that comfort you, child of God. Maybe that your saved loved one has departed and gone to be with Christ. Well, they have entered into the city of the living God. Everlasting joy is now upon their head And they have been delivered, finally, ultimately, from the miseries of this life, forever past. What a portion this is for the saved. But as I close, I asked, what is the portion of the one who does not sigh nor cry for mercy? What's the portion, what's the inheritance of the one who does not trust in Christ, well, it will be eternal misery. God is looking from the heights of His sanctuary. He's looking from heaven into this meeting. He sees your heart. He knows your thoughts. He's here to save. He's here to help you. The hymn writer asked, Who sighs for a heart from iniquity free? And then he goes on to give the encouragement O poor troubled soul, there's a promise for thee. There's rest, weary one, in the bosom of God. Step out on the promise. Get under the blood. That's what you must do tonight. Step out on the promise that He will receive all that will come. On the promise that He will save all who call. On the promise that His blood cleanses from all sin. On the promise that He will not turn you away but grant unto you eternal life. The Lord's not indifferent to the groans of the prisoners of sin. Call out to Him for mercy. Rest upon what Christ has done. Turn from those sins which only result in misery. That's all it will tend to. Misery in this life, inwardly, outwardly. Misery in eternity. Come now, come without delay, and Christ will loose you. He will loose you from the sentence of eternal death. Will you do that? As God looks from heaven, the imagery again, He's peering out of the windows of heaven, leaning forward with intention, ready, willing, able to save, looking in mercy upon you and your misery. Will you not come to Him and rest in what Christ has done and be set free 
from your sin. May the Lord give you grace to do that tonight, to come and to rest in Him and to know what it is to have joy and gladness instead of misery and eternal sorrow. Let's bow in prayer before I pray. Once again, I make myself available. I know Mr. Greer mentioned about the youth rally, but that's not till later on. We have time between now and then. The Reverend Greer's here as well. We're servants. In the Lord's stead, we want to meet us in the inquiry room, in the minister's room. We'll gladly open the scripture. We'll be wise and turn to Christ while he looks upon you in mercy and be saved. Father in heaven, we leave the word that has been preached before thee. And thou hast said that the word that goeth forth out of thy mouth, it will not return unto thee void. Lord, it's not been empty. It's not been a vain exercise that this preacher has been engaged in this evening. And we pray, Lord, that it will prosper in the thing to which you have sent it, that it would accomplish that which you please. And we know, Lord, that there is one thing that brings you great delight, and that's the salvation of the lost. And as you look upon this gathering, as you view the hearts of all men, young people, boys and girls, We thank Thee that Thou art a God who is plenteous in mercy. O God, work upon the souls of men and women. Draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. O God, we even asked of Thee that Thou would take from them all the pleasures and all the tinsel and entertainment of this world, which only distracts them from the true and real condition in which they find themselves before Thee. Lord, we pray that they would feel the misery of their sin, that Thou Thyself will make them miserable in sin. We think of our young people who maybe hanker after the world. O God, we pray that Thou would show them, Lord, that there's nothing there. It's only the bubbles that will burst. But Lord, there's life There's liberty, there's joy and eternal gladness in Jesus Christ. Salvation is off the Lord. Bless, O God, we pray, and bring sinners to thyself. Father, pray for thy dear children. We pray that you'll bless them in the week that lies before them. Lord, it is our privilege, it is our portion now to Declare the name of the Lord. And we pray that you'll help us to proclaim and to praise that many shall see it and fear and on the Lord rely. Now, O God, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people this night and forevermore until the day break. And the shadows flee away, and we're in the land of eternal light. Do us good, watch over us, as we part the one from the other. For I ask this in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.